Hey. Thanks, Andy. What a lovely meditation. Um, and maybe even take that as a bit of a challenge. Like, yeah, I want to talk about spiritual experiences this morning, but I don't know. What do you think? What's a spiritual experience to you? I mean, have you had one? How would you describe it? Um, what, what qualities does it have? Do you, or does it make you uncomfortable? A phrase like spiritual experience. I think that's probably worth talking about um, and thinking about. I don't know why those Italian kids were sticking coins in the lights to play soccer, but um, I do know they, they've won the World Cup four times, so <laughs> it's working. <laughs> Ave Maria and all. So, um, yeah, <clears throat> really we're going to start diving in now to this series, which I'm calling Spirituality for the 21st Century, and I want to explore it in a variety of ways, but I thought let's start off with uh, a simple question. I don't know if the if there's a simple answer, but what's a spiritual experience? And what's it for? I actually like the second half of that question better than the first. What's it for? So that's the kind of terrain I'm, I, I want to sort of wander in today. And, um, and maybe before I get going, let's, let's start with a poem. And I want to start with a poem because <laughs> the nature of describing spiritual experience is challenging. I read a few months ago that uh, lovely, I was reminded of it this morning, that lovely passage in uh, Pilgrim at Tinker Creek, at Tinker Creek, that's an Annie Dillard book, uh, where she describes the tree that's lit from within, and she's sort of saying the moment she puts pen to paper, or the moment a certain quality of consciousness enters, it's over. And so poetry, or art, is often the the closest we get to describing these kind of mysterious human experiences of consciousness. So let's begin with some, some Rilke. Let's listen to what he has to say. This poem is called uh, You Come and Go. and you'll, you'll start to wonder, to whom is uh, Rilke speaking here? You come and go. He says, you come and go. The doors swing closed ever more gently, almost without a shudder. Of all who move through the quiet houses, you are the quietest. You come and go, he says. You come and go. You are the quietest. We become so accustomed to you, we no longer look up. When your shadow falls over the book, we are reading and makes it glow. For all things sing you at times. We just hear them more clearly. Often when I imagine you, your wholeness cascades into many shapes. You run like a herd of luminous deer, and I am dark, I am a forest. You are a wheel at which I stand. You are a wheel at which I stand, whose dark spokes sometimes catch me up. Revolve me nearer to the center. Then all the work I put my hand to widens from turn to turn. It's these like subtle final lines that is in fact the way I would address the question, what is a spiritual experience and what's the point? You are a wheel at which I stand whose dark spokes sometimes catch me up, revolve me nearer to the center. 
which I heard in the background of some of the things that Andy was saying, like you're caught up in something and it's orienting in some way. It orients us toward center, toward source, toward a mysterious core. Then all the work I put my hand to widens from turn to turn. So it sort of gives us a sense of why put the hand to the plow or what's the point, that sort of thing. So we'll just let that poem kind of hang in the background. Um, and I'm not going to say too much more about it because I want to get into, I'm going to try to get into some definitions. It's funny when as soon as you start talking about spiritual experiences, if you're super spiritual and you start defining things, then people get nervous. Like, oh, you can't, you can't define a spiritual experience. And if you're um, not that spiritual, it's like, what are we even talking about? <laughs> kind of has these two extremes. And, uh, but I'm going to dive in anyway. And it's not like I'm the first to do this. I mean, to bring critical thought to uh, the question of spiritual experiences. I mean, it's, it's in our traditions. It's, and in fact, two of the more, more famous works are sort of around in the background of what I'm saying. You have um, William James has his famous book, The Varieties of Religious Experience. That's what he's trying to do. What, what's a spiritual experience? And, and you should check it out sometime if you have several months on your hands. <laughs> Um, and then uh, Evelyn Underhill has a famous book called Mysticism, which she's trying to do the same thing. What, what, what's a spiritual experience? And, and she's writing as a mystic in her own right, really. I mean, one who's been caught up, not just, although it's a very academic book as well. And then you have the entire tradition of various religious traditions, from Hinduism to Buddhism to contemplative Christianity, which in a way are cataloging spiritual experiences. Not that they're saying that this is what a spiritual experience is, but it's, it's, it's a kind of collection. So the idea that human beings would wonder about such a thing, we're, that's what we're doing. We're, we're doing that. If we're, and we're going to call ourselves a spiritual community um, or an inclusive spiritual community. It's a good thing to wonder about. Well, what's that? And what's a spiritual experience and so forth? So, okay. Um, I want to <clears throat> use some categories here that I'm borrowing from a guy named Gerald May, who I mentioned last week, he has a book called Will and Spirit. He also has a book on addiction. He's a psychiatrist, kind of turned spiritual director. He started something called the Shalem Institute. And um, Will and Spirit is a very interesting book, and he attempts to do something that I'm trying to do today. And I like his categories. I just want you to kind of hold these. And he, broadly speaking, likes to frame spiritual experiences on the one hand a certain variety is what he calls self-identifying experiences, self-identifying, revelatory about the self in some way, and the other he calls self-losing. So you can see the, the two twins here. It's like the, you know those ships, those Greek ships with the, I forget the, the gods at the front, but they have the two faces, the two twins. That's, that's what what I'd like to suggest here. The two twins, self-identifying and self-losing. And you, you might say, which is better? Because I want the best one. I want the best spiritual experiences. I don't know. That's what I'd say. So I'm going to use those categories, and I'm just going to try to describe what he's hinting around about, about the nature of spiritual experiences. But I want to come across right at the beginning with a sort of more bold statement, which is, and this is in harmony with William James and Evelyn Underhill and whoever else, 
You can't manufacture them and you can't plan them, no matter if they're self-identifying or self-losing. They're not, you can't produce them necessarily. Now, you might be able to enter a container in which it's porous enough for something to happen. That might be one way of saying, or to use kind of you know, modern language, there might be technologies that assist us in uh, creating spaces um, or frames in which a spiritual experience can happen, but there seems to be a common ingredient that you can't manufacture them. You can't make them up. You can't direct them, and the moment you try to hold on to them, they slip through your fingers of both of these varieties. So that's maybe just like an opening ingredient um, as we kind of like wander into this terrain. So the first is, as I said, a kind of self-identifying experience. It's an insight into the self, or we could even say to what's beneath our ordinary understanding of the I, of the ego, of the self. And you probably know what I'm talking about already, even though I'm using like, you know, fancy-ish sounding words. Have you ever had an experience where you're like, huh, where did that come from? I didn't know who I was until this moment, or something is revealed about my core that I didn't quite see before. It's like, oh, I've been operating under a kind of a, an illusion about who I am in the world. See, that's a self-identifying, self-revelatory kind of experience. It expands our self-understanding is probably the best way of saying it. Um, it might even give us in, uh, insight into the nature of things more broadly in the external world, but there's still something about our own self that's being revealed. Um, maybe within that you have, I don't want to go too crazy here, but we might put conversion kinds of experiences in this realm of self-identifying. It's like, oh, I was kind of going this way, and all of a sudden, through a, uh, a kind of revelation, I'm turning around, that would be repentance, I guess, or changing my mind, or switching religions, or letting go of these illusions, and now I, I'm standing more on solid ground. Now I, I see where the error of my ways, and I've come home to myself. Those are ways of describing kind of conversion experience. And I don't mean you have to convert to a religion. I can mean you can convert away from religion if you want. I took a whole class at Hebrew University where I went to, where I went to graduate school just on conversion. And, uh, of course, at the end of the class, we concluded we have no idea what conversion is. That's what uh, graduate school is like. <laughs> One of the interesting asides in there that one professor, two professors taught the class, his main theme was conversion is just conversion to language. That's what he just, that was his mantra that he kept, kept uh, um, repeating. But, there was, but with that as kind of an aside, it's like you have an experience, that's what I'm suggesting, you have an experience that's self-revelatory, like you find your ground and then... In a conversion experience, you're given some language in which to frame that, you say, and that the community helps with that. Oh, let us tell you what it is that you're experiencing. And you're like, oh, yes, that's it. And then you're part of the group, which is what we'll be doing at the end of this uh, talk. <laughs> so get ready. Just be prepared. Conversion is coming. Um, I think I would also put visionary kinds of experiences in, in this. Of, of, I mean, all kinds of visionary experiences uh, where there's a, a kind of flooding like you see, maybe may even be Annie Dillard's sort of uh, uh, 
vision of seeing the tree lit from within or any kind of visionary experience where the self gets shaken up. Who am I? To what am I connected? And often with some clarity, at least for a moment. And I think I'd also have to include in in these self-identifying kind of experiences what we would call classically possession, possessed by something. The self is in a way almost taken over a kind of energetic force. And possession, you could think about that positively or negatively if you wanted to. Um, but those, those are the qualities. Now, what's interesting about, I'm just going to, this is kind of an aside. Um, according to Gerald May, this kind of uh, spiritual experience, self-identifying, is actually kind of rare. It's sort of rare. And the other form I'll describe in a, in a moment is a little more common. So even as I was thinking about this, have I ever had these kinds of insights? I think I have. I would even put um, what Bill Plotkin, one of my teachers, uh, calls um, a soul encounter, sort of a glimpse of one's essence for a moment. That's a, maybe a nice way of defining soul anyway, just like, what is, what's your essence? What's, what's sort of beneath there, your, the foundations of who you are? That's a soul encounter. Um, but it's self-revelatory. I didn't know, and now I've sort of found my ground. Uh, maybe we could even call that the true self-language, to use Merton. I don't know if he invented that, but he certainly popularized the true self-notion. Um, okay. Now, what, what I want to say, I want to take both of these and say, what happens to the ego? When I say ego, all I mean is your conscious awareness, like the I. Like right now, your ego is operating and you're thinking, I think Kent's full of crap or um, is March really going to be this crappy forever or whatever, whatever the, the I, what you're aware of. And you might be, if you, if you have a, uh, uh, an ego that's, that's um, relatively whole you, uh, or... or conscious of many factors. It's not just your thoughts. You might be aware of your, able to tap into your own uh, body sensations right now and, and your feeling sense, like, ah, oh, I have a, a feeling about this or that. And okay, that's just your ego. But um, self-identifying experiences, at the very least, shake that up. Like, shake the eye up. It, it's like, oh, wait a minute. I'm not, I'm not so sure I know what I'm talking about. And, and therefore, it leads to a kind of growth or expansion, potential for growth, expansion, cracking, repentance. You know, falling in love can do this, although there are lots of chemicals and hormones, and that's true of all these experiences. We could run them through the grid of, of brain science and body chemistry, and we'd gain a lot of information, and people have. But falling in love is, like, also disruptive. Like, I thought the world worked this way, and I thought I knew what I was doing, and the kinds of things I care about. Um, even sometimes what I like to call ecological awakening, it, it shakes the self. It's like, whoa, I didn't realize I, there's the in, interesting self-identifying phrase here, was a part of something. It's not completely dissolved here. The ego isn't blown out of the water, but it's, it's connected in some way. Okay. So, uh, I just want to bring it back to C3 for a moment. Okay, so here we are. We call ourselves an inclusive spiritual community. And so far I've said very little, but just a few things about self-identifying experiences. So as a spiritual community, 
I think it's important to hold out the possibility that these things happen to us. Something of what I'm saying happens to us. And I want you to do some self-examination. Like, think about it this week. Have I ever had a kind of self-identifying experience where who I was expanded for a moment or was connected to something larger or I found the ground of who I was for a moment or, or my, my sense of who I was was shaken to the core and, and then some clarity came in. What are those moments? And did you plan them where you're like, hey, tomorrow at 3 or at 2, at, at 2 a.m. when I'm supposed to set my clocks, whatever, forward, I'm just going to go ahead and sign up for one of those things. No, probably if you've had any taste of anything I'm describing, you didn't plan it. You didn't plan it. In fact, you may have gone to the meditation retreat and thought, this is a freaking waste of my time, and on the way home, something happened. You know, that's, that, that's how it often happens for me. Um, so as a spiritual community, we want to hold out the possibility for these, and, and, and of course, we want to value expansion of the self. Expansion of the ego. I do. I value that. I think that's important. I don't want to remain stuck somewhere. I'd like my own consciousness to expand. We keep repeating, you know, Einstein's famous phrase, no problem can be solved by the same consciousness that created it, some version of that. Well, how do you change your consciousness, you know? Well, remaining stuck in the same, in a kind of rigidity, um, I don't think we'll be solving any problems. Okay, here's another thing I think to keep in mind, which is um, with these kind of self-identifying experiences, I like to think about it as the posture is that we're sort of half right and half blind, everybody. You're half right and half blind. You know, um, the Pharisees come to Jesus one time and they say, Jesus, are you saying we're blind? And he says, if you claim to see, you're blind. <laughs> which is a way of saying... It's important to hold a certain kind of posture. You do know who you are, really. Like, you have a, but you're also blind. <laughs> you also don't really know that much. Half right and half blind. That's the kind of posture, I think, that doesn't create an exper a spiritual experience, but provides a sort of pathway on which to walk, to be surprised by life itself, or be surprised by an insight, or be surprised by an experience. And of course, religion and spiritualities are full of technologies that enhance environments. That's what we're doing here. This is, this is essentially a technology. I mean that in the broadest sense of the word. Like, why are you gathering at 10 a.m. on a Sunday morning, and there's a few little songs, and, and a guy going on and on, and a meditation, and a chime, and these are technologies. They're technologies. They don't produce something, but they create a certain kind of playing field. Okay. What else do I want to say? That's probably it for self-identifying, because I want to get to the other twin face here at the ship that's floating out to sea, the sea of emptiness on which we are floating. We have these two faces of the spiritual experience, the self-identifying and what I'm going to call the self-losing, or what's often called the unitive experience. And the unitive experience is a loss of self, of ego, an immolation, in a sense, an experience where there is no I. That's technically a unitive experience. Like, where did the I go? And the moment you have that question, it's over. <laughs> the moment you bring something in. So we could be talking about a kind of 
uh, presence, maybe that's the best way of saying it, spiritual experiences, like of this variety, have a certain kind of presence, like a potent presence that in which the eye dissolves in some way. We're caught up, here are the characteristics, we're caught up or suspended, something like that. And there's no sense of time, there's no sense of ordinary day world waking time. It's a, it, in the traditions, this would be called a taste of the eternal, because that's what it is. Where did time go? It's not a thought, it's just you're caught up in the timelessness. Have you ever been caught up in in a kind of timeless moment? Like, what happened? And maybe it's in the few minutes that follow that, there's a sense of wonder or awe or amazement. Sometimes it's not even in the moment because sometimes there's nothing in the moment. It's just pure presence. It's just, it's that unitive. There's no division. But then afterwards, there's like, what the hell was that? And that's what I would call awe. (laughs) What the hell was that? A kind of wondering and a kind of opening that can follow. It's sort of like being wide awake and open without thought. That's more of a Zen, Zen idea. Um, here's my way of putting it. It's like consciousness itself is, extends in all directions. There, there, that consciousness has no direction. There's no such thing as direction, and consciousness just is. It's the isness of all isness, and that's a universe, that's a unitive experience, and, and you get a taste. And now what's interesting, by the way, because this sounds super fancy, but one of the things I like about what Gerald May argues in this book, Will and Spirit, he says they're actually very common. Actually very common. Children have them all the time. You have them all the time. And they're very subtle. This is slightly different than, it's not unrelated, but if you take Maslow's um, peak experiences, he asked a very interesting question. He asked people um, if they had any ecstatic moments. And that's what he was trying to define as a peak experience. And I think a peak experience might qualify potentially as a self-losing. I think it could be also a self-identifying experience. But peak experiences make it sound like you're, it's going to be awesome. Like, get ready, you know. But they're actually far more subtle. The vast uh, majority of them are very, very, very subtle and very small. It's like I remember I just had a, a, a visual as I was speaking, of my first child um, coming into the world when she was blue. Like, and, and there was no thought involved. There was no, I wasn't thinking. I mean, very quickly, I started thinking, I hope she doesn't remain blue. But there was something about that moment that was just suspended and timeless and incredibly meaningful which is maybe an ingredient we could slide in here. But it's as if it was just one vast consciousness. Now, not that I thought that and, and called my you know, friends and family. I had a unitive experience. You know? It only just occurred to me right now because it's very subtle and it's very small and very slight. And think about your own moments like that. When you're doing nothing in particular and something of the isness of reality breaks in for a moment, um, okay, so what happens to the ego? Uh, what we would call a kind of death. The, the, the ego is, is not present for a moment. It's a, a kind of ego death. And the funny thing about the ego is that it can't make a unitive experience happen. It's like these are all the best 
Zen stories are something like, quit trying, you know? That's the general advice. I want enlightenment, don't seek it. And there's a kind of window that opens up when we quit trying and quit quitting and quit trying not to quit. Some, you know, mixture of that sort of dynamic. So the ego can't make a unit of experience happen. Even things like, and this is more of a wondering I have. So we have like technologies like um, biofeedback and drugs and meditation and and, and I think right now we're at a very interesting time in, in history where we're able to study these in a kind of scientific way that hasn't been open to us in the past. And, it, and I, I guess the question at hand is, can you produce a unit of experience through various technologies? My answer is, I don't know. My, my wondering is probably not, but the technologies, again, create a kind of atmosphere in which the possibility of such things happen. Um, okay, let me read you some John of the Cross to give you a little taste of what I'm trying to describe here. In order to arrive at being everything, desire uh, to be nothing. Okay. So what advice like, ah, oh, I want to have a unit of experience. Well, don't want a unit of experience. Uh, in order to arrive at being everything, desire to be nothing. Here's, here's another way of putting it. In order to arrive at knowing everything, desire to know nothing. <laughs> There's a, that relaxation. I tried to, just, to give you just a sense for that last week, the, the, the difference in posture between willfulness and willingness. Like, just open and close your hands. Just do it even as you're just... It gives you something to do anyway. It keeps you awake. So, you know, but willfulness and willingness. You know, willingness seems to be a necessary ingredient in unitive experience. It doesn't manufacture it, but a lot of willfulness is a kind of block, it seems to be. At least that's what the contemplative traditions suggest. So here's a line from James, James Finley. Um, we can't make moments of oceanic oneness happen, but we can offer a stance of least resistance. To me, that's a spiritual life. That's a spiritual life worth pursuing. So I'll just I'll say it again. We can't make moments of oceanic oneness happen, but we can offer a stance of least resistance. Yeah, so yeah, that's the kind of, I think that's, that's an element of the spiritual life that I think is important for the 21st century. Can we, can, can we offer a stance of least resistance? Now, you still might be wondering, what's the point of all this? I'll get, to, I'll get to that. Are these just like things that happen to human beings because of the state of human consciousness and it's just the nature of, our, of the biological animal that is the human that has these kinds of things? Okay, yeah, but what's the point? And I'll, I'll, I have some suggestions about that. Um, okay. I want to say two things along the lines of what's the point. Both of these varieties of religious experience, these categories, whether it's self-identifying and self-losing, the loss of self and some clarity around the self, both have the, uh, a common effect, and that is that they disturb the self-image. Okay? They disturb the self-image. Have you ever seen... Um, uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. 
well, no one says anything, but I'm going to say probably some of you have. Um, so so they, they get the Holy Grail. Or no, uh, it's not the last crusade. What's the one where they find the Ark of the Covenant? Raiders of the Lost Ark? Oh, there it is, the Ark of the Covenant. All right. <clears throat> Should have brushed up on my movies before uh, I opened my mouth. Um, okay, the Ark of the Covenant. Well, I think it's, a, it's like a Nazi general, because you always have to have the Nazis in these films, all right? Looks into the Ark of the Covenant and his face melts, okay? Now, this is a, I'm going to go ahead and say, a universal dimension of all great spiritual and religious traditions, that if you look straight into the deity itself, you dissolve, you are disrupted, you're your face melts off or you die. So first thing I want to say is you want a spiritual experience? Really? That's what you want? You want a unitive experience? You want a, 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 a self-identifying experience? I'm telling you, something of your own self-image is going to be shaken to its core. Really. And you'll be like, I don't know what I'm talking about. I don't even know who I am. I don't even know how the world works. It's not this like hippie, kind of like, stay positive, like, it's all, it's all one, man, and just let's us all get along and hug each other, and not, not according to the great traditions here, all right, really. There's something that's fundamentally disruptive, and when I think about spirituality for the 21st century, I think we need something fundamentally disruptive to our self-image. I mean that personally, and I mean that collectively. Who do we think we are in the world? Well, spiritual experiences can come in and shake that up. And we can't make them happen, but perhaps we can offer a stance of least resistance, which would mean only getting your news from Facebook. You know, that's, that's the path of least resistance. No, it's like go wander for three days in the wilderness. Turn your phone off for a month. Hold the hand of a child and walk 10 miles. I don't know. Those are the kinds of pathways that um, make us uh, permeable, I think is the right, or porous. I would like to live in a more porous way instead of in a defended, self-righteous, enlightened, liberal, smart you said I was an encyclopedia. That's a defense. I know nothing, you know, really. I know nothing on the deepest level. And so if you walk like that, yeah, perhaps something will take you by the throat, you know. So yeah, um, what's the point? The point is to disrupt the self-image. And what's the point of that? I think growth, expansion. We move from simple to complex and from complex to even more complex. That's the, that's the secret of evolution, and we're a part of that. You are evolving, and we are evolving. There's an individual evolution, a collective evolution, which I would like to suggest has something to do with growth and an expansion of consciousness, which we desperately need, in case you watch the news and are aware of such things. Okay, so let me look at my notes here, because I'm feeling like I want to land the plane. Here I just want to be direct. Deep spiritual experiences, 
especially when we chew on them, integrate them, take them in like the Eucharist, you know, smoke them like a pipe, you know, integrate them, let them work on us. Deep spiritual experiences, to the extent they can be integrated and understood, though they probably are always a little bit out of our grasp, lead to a life of service. That's what we can trust from all of the great spiritual religious teachers and masters and traditions. They all say, if the mystery has touched you in some way, you can't help but reorient your life toward a life of service. It seems to be a kind of universal. You can hear it in the background of Rilke's final line here. Then all the work I put my hand to widens from turn to turn. I give myself away in some way. You know what's funny? I was thinking about on the way in, I was thinking about this line from Jesus that nobody takes seriously. He says, um, I did not come to, to be served. And what does most of Christianity claim to be doing? We're serving Jesus. He says, well, that's not the point. I did not come to be served. I came to serve. Do you feel the difference? I think that's someone who's had a series of spiritual experiences that so disrupted his own self-image that in his next line is, and to give my life away. So there seems to be this kind of like way of being in the world that I think is absolutely essential for the future of a healthy world, for healthy families and healthy communities, and, which is a kind of orientation. So the point of spiritual experience is not to like tell people about them and post about them on Instagram, you know, look, I'm enlightened or whatever, some nonsense. It's to give your life away. That's sort of what, that's Jesus' way of putting it, and other spiritual masters might put it differently. So, in other words, spiritual insight seems to put us on the path of service, sacrifice, and humility. And perhaps if there's one thing to walk away with in terms of questioning spiritual experiences, when they lead to narcissism, self-interest, and self-image, we can be pretty sure they're not a spiritual experience in the classic sense. They're just experiences that are leading to our own inflation, and we don't need more of that. That seems like a good final line. Thanks for listening.